you're just joining us, we are nearing the end of our fall series called Lord Teach Us to Pray. Um, and today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And it says this, For we live in the world, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Father, we pray that your word would go out in power and that you would accomplish the work that you intend with this message today. And as much as it's me up here talking, I pray that your voice and your truth, the reality of who you are would just be revealed to us, your people. And we pray that you would silence our distractions and the things that might actually keep us from hearing your voice today. And ultimately, God, we just pray as well that there would be a redemptive and healing aspect to how you move in this gathering. In Jesus' name, amen. And then go ahead and grab your seat. So uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I met a guy named Cole. Now, Cole, um, when we're friends now, but when we first met, I got the sense that he wasn't really sure about me which is okay. I mean, people have their reservations about pastors. I get that. But like, my goal is to win over at least one in two. That's my goal. When, if I could win over one in two people, I feel like that's pretty good. But Cole has been through a lot of life already. He's 21 years old, but he's been through a lot. That's a story for him to probably tell you at some point. But he just kept coming uh, to Riverbend at night, week after week, even though he didn't really agree uh, or follow after Jesus. And then there was one night, uh, about a month and a half ago, during a roundtable discussion on prayer, go figure, who would have thought that I would have wanted to lead a conversation on prayer, which I always do. Um, so we were talking on prayer, and it just it became uh, evident to me that it was time for him to uh, make a decision to follow Jesus. And so right then and there, a group of us, uh, Micah and Stephanie and Steve and Chet and a few others, we got to lead Cole to faith in Jesus, which was so awesome. And it was incredible. He was filled with the Spirit right then, and it was incredible. There was like lots of uh, you know, happy tears and hugging it out, which I know makes some of us uncomfortable, but it was really a life-changing moment for him and for this guy and for, for, for many of us. Now, the following week for Cole, several things uh, changed all of a sudden. All in his own, he decided that he was going to get sober, so he quit drinking and smoking all in his own. He also was feeling like the conviction of the Holy Spirit around like sexual temptation and stuff, so he was reading 2 Timothy and decided to flee from all of that, which I'm very encouraged and proud of him for. He also started buying lunch for people in the houseless community here in Bend and actually sitting with them and sharing his story. And then he also just started going through his contact list and telling everyone that he had been forgiven by Jesus. <laughs> this is like quite a productive week, wouldn't, he, wouldn't you say? I love that. So now Cole's just 
in the very beginnings of his life with Jesus, and there's plenty, I'm sure, that the Lord wants to transform in his life over his lifetime, and that's what spiritual formation and the discipleship journey is all about. And it's not just Cole, actually. There's many other people like Cole who are in this room. We've got many others of you who've come to faith in recent years. There's like Dylan and, and Joe and Chet and Megan and Betsy and Ember and many others who have come to faith and or maybe some who will one day come to faith in Jesus right from within our very secular cultural moment. And personally, I'm more hopeful today uh, for the future of the church and the outlook of the church in the West than I've ever been before because of stories like that. And I understand that for many of you, that might sound crazy because we're being taught or we're being told that we're in a state of spiritual decline. Now, it is true uh, that we are in an increasingly post-Christian culture where deconversion stories are far more popular than conversion stories, and secularism is supposedly taking a bunch of ground, and we can all point to once very vibrant and powerful Christian institutions that are now plagued by corruption and apathy and all of that. And all of the data suggests that the church in the West is at perhaps more vulnerable, weak, and fragile now than in the last 50 years at least. Now, what this has meant is for many church leaders and many denominations, we've sort of basically resigned to managing the slow decline of the church in the West, which is so boring, <laughs> so, so boring, and completely unnecessary. I am not gonna sign up for that, and I don't think that you should sign up for it either. See, the problem is with our perspective. Now, churches have died out in cultures in centuries past. There's plenty of stories of that that we can look to. But despite what many people might fear, the culprit is not like an unfavorable socio-political climate or something like that. Sure, those things are often present when a church dies out, but the main issue with a dying church is a lack of love and a lack of faithfulness to God from within the church herself. It's when God's people stop praying, and it's when God's people stop seeking him as a matter of first importance. That's the warning sign in the church to be looking out for, and it's also a devotion to prayer and a return to prayer is also where we find great hope. So as we speak, the church in China is thriving. The church in Cuba is also thriving. The church in Nigeria, where pastors are regularly and often being killed for faith in Jesus, is also thriving. The church in South Sudan is very underground and very unpolished, I'd imagine. You can't go to their podcast or their website or Instagram, but they're growing exponentially as we speak. 2022, right? So I don't think that a favorable socio-political climate is the thing that's necessary for the church to thrive. The data just doesn't support that theory. Now, I think, though, what people may be concerned by, and I get this point, I get where people are coming from. Heck, my job even depends on it, which is that fewer and fewer people in the West identify as Christian now than a couple of decades ago. Fewer still attend church or belong to a faith community. And even fewer are motivated to live a life that's consistent with the life of Jesus. Now all of that is true and I would say very concerning. 
So how can we have hope for the church of the future and how can I stand here uh, before you today with actually a lot of hope for the church of the future, for us, for, for Gen Z, for those of you who have kids, your kids? Well, I, I think that we can be confident for one reason. We can be confident because of how God has accomplished his victory throughout history. We have the track record of Yahweh God to be able to study and look back on and it enlivens and animates our faith in him. See, scripture is filled with examples of God's overwhelming victory that's coming from just a few quite ordinary but faith-filled radicals. For example, Gideon in Judges chapter 7, when he finally obeys God to go up against the massive, probably 100,000 or so Midianite army who's on the attack, coming to wipe Israel off the face of the map. God sends him into battle with, uh, with the Midianites, and then he asks Midian, or excuse me, he asks Gideon to send most of his force home, which is about 32,000 that he whittled down to 20,000, which whittled down eventually to 300 men. And this was by God's design so that he would be glorified by the victory in Judges and, and not Gideon or his military strategy. And God does get the glory for that. Also, Acts chapter 17. This is the first generation, if you will, of the church. And the first generation of the church started, as you know, with like 12 freaked out guys in an upper room in Jerusalem. And their ministry across a couple of decades had made it all the way to Thessalonica in modern day Greece with like hundreds and hundreds of miles away of the origin place of Christianity. And when they got to uh, Thessalonica, their opponents were furious and they said, these men, these men who've caused trouble all over the world, now they're here, they've come here. So the early church has this reputation of being in the extreme minority and having the most unlikely message and yet this very disruptive and amazing power that comes with it and it's actually beginning to turn the world upside down. So the people of God have a history uh, of being in the extreme minority, outgunned, outnumbered in every way and yet God, because of his great power and because of his sovereign timing, he brings about spiritual awakening and widespread renewal at times when he wills. So our concern shouldn't necessarily be with like regaining whatever majorities that we've thought we've lost in America or something like that, or worse, managing the decline of the church in the 21st century. Our concern should be with our own fidelity to Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? Like our own fidelity to Jesus and our love for him. And while we're at it, let's all become students of how God accomplishes victory throughout history and strenuously contend in prayer for it to happen in our time and culture. Right? Prayer is the sort of necessary component behind all of this. And so how can we, from a minority position in a very secular age, begin to strenuously pray for the kingdom of God to come and bend us in heaven? Well, Martin Luther King Jr., among others, have called this pers perspective, the perspective that we're talking about right now, the creative minority. 
a creative minority, which is a way of seeing ourselves in the Pacific Northwest and 21st century culture or whatever, devoted to the renewal of, world, of the world, but we're devoted to the renewal of the world not through like numbers and control or conventional power, but as an influential minority who's relying on God's power. This is a very different kind of perspective. We're not actually talking about uh, you know, having conventional power or control or how the world might seek to uh, influence a generation. We actually come from the minority procession and we're relying instead on God's pattern of how he accomplishes a victory and, uh, and then strenuously praying for him to bring that in our time as well. Are you with me so far? Is this making sense? Okay. All right, so let me give you two biblical examples. Number one is Daniel and number two is Nehemiah. So Daniel chapter six uh, details possibly one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament. It's one of our favorites of course, we talk to our kids about quite regularly, Daniel in the lion's den, right? Now, Daniel is this Jewish man, and if you're not familiar, he's in exile in a place called Babylon, which is a completely pagan society that had come and basically uh, brought Israel into ruin and hauled them off into exile. And uh, David becomes the servant of a king by the name of Darius. And at the time, think about Daniel's situation. He's in the extreme minority. He's got no pull, no influence. He's a servant, no power to influence change. He's just in this overwhelming minority of people who follow Yahweh in a foreign pagan land. This is Daniel's position. But Daniel's good at his job. Daniel's good at his job. And so he keeps getting promoted out of the position that he was in to the point where it begins to make a lot of the lawmakers in, uh, in the area very jealous of Daniel. And so we, we know this story. They, they come up with a plan to sort of entrap Daniel. That's their plan. So this is what the scripture says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. At this, the administrators and, and satraps, they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so because they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Isn't this so fascinating? What's going on here is Daniel is a man of character, of trustworthiness, of virtue, so that he keeps getting promoted and everything else. It's causing all of this jealousy. And so they want to find some way to get rid of this Daniel so that they could advance their own political agendas or whatever. And they're like, let's get him. And as they begin to go through his life with a fine-toothed comb, they can't actually find anything, any corruption or any competency issue or whatever in order to get Daniel out and advance their position. And I think that this is the most important first step of what it means to become a creative minority in our culture. It's not about focusing on influencing others at all. It's actually about your life being in stark contrast to the world of evil, brokenness, and sin. And I cannot help but think that so much of the influence that our churches have lost over the last 50 years have been because of integrity and corruption issues. And if you have a conversation, as I suggest that you do with people outside of the family of faith, this is one of the primary objections that people bring up 
oh yeah, but all of you Christians are just the same as anyone else, vengeful and hateful and unforgiving and all of the things, which I don't actually think is universally true. However, I would say that our secular culture has a point. Aren't you supposed to be the love people? Aren't you supposed to be the forgiveness people? Aren't you supposed to be the reconciliation people? I don't see that with your, with your lives and with culture as a whole. Now, again, not all true, but in Daniel's case, they couldn't get anything to stick on him because he was a man of integrity. He was a man who was trustworthy and who was competent. So this is the first step of becoming a creative minority. Not necessarily about influencing others, it's actually just being a person who's faithful to God himself. And one of the things that we've lost in the Western church, and at least in one way, shape, or form, is God's radical call to fidelity to him. A radical call to walk in the way of Jesus. And so again, I think that we have corruption and integrity issues from within the church. And often when I talk to people who are very concerned about where things are going, they're citing outside secular agendas that are really in their minds the problem. But I would argue that we actually have much more internal issues that we need to work out, primarily our fidelity to King Jesus. So, we need to devote ourselves to practicing the way of Jesus. The answer is not me like up here standing, kind of wagging my fingers at you guys and us all feeling bad about ourselves. That's not the point at all. No shame, no judgment. This is a grace place. This is a good news grace place <laughs> because Jesus died on the cross for us. But the invitation is for you and I to begin to practice the way of Jesus so that over time, our character is reformed to be much more like his. And it's not to say that we'll ever be perfect, but in the language of 1 Timothy, we may be above reproach, which is to say nothing will be able to stick on us. We actually are people of true integrity. John Tyson, in a great book he wrote called On Becoming a Creative Minority, I highly recommend you pick it up and give it a read. He says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave basically no one their money and practically gave everyone their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically no one their body and they gave practically everyone their money. So I absolutely love that sentiment and that idea. See, Daniel's opposition, they, they knew they couldn't entrap him with his life because his life was filled with integrity. But they, they, and they knew his character. They knew that he would always follow the law up until it came into conflict with his allegiance to God. And this is where their strategy goes. They know that if they, they can entrap Daniel, if the law that they suggest would actually be in conflict with his allegiance to Yahweh. And this is how they, trust, uh, this is how they test where his true loyalty is. So I guess the question for us is, can that be said of you and me? Can it be said of you and me? that we are faithful to the Lord and that we'll be law-abiding and decent uh, citizens of the land in which we live up until the point in which we're asked to compromise our fidelity or obedience to God. And I believe that in the church we have some work to do on that. Now next, here's what happens. Um, 
Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published. Okay, so here's what's going on in the story so far. You know, they propose a law, the satraps and the government officials, they propose a law to King Darius that would involve Daniel not praying to God any longer, but only praying to King Darius. And uh, this is what it says. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows had been opened towards Jerusalem. And three, day, three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. So I, I love this. What Daniel is saying is, yes, I will follow the laws of the land as much as I possibly can, but up until the point where it actually conflicts with my allegiance to God, I will continue to pray. So Daniel has an unbending resolve to pray. So where his culture was pressuring him to compromise, he was willing to risk everything by maintaining faithfulness, by continuing to be obedient. Again, he's not trying to convince others to pray necessarily. He's not out there you know, picketing. He's just out there praying. Right? He's okay being the strange person, the only person really who's being obedient to God in that moment. So again, I think that prayer should be interwoven into our lives to the extent that there's just no way to separate it out. And that if someone asked you to pray, it would be like asking you not to eat or sleep. It would just be absolutely a ridiculous idea that you could never agree to and that you would just continue in your resolve, like Daniel, to pray. Three times a day is how, how Daniel prays, and he does it just as he had done before. So again, nothing is going to pull Daniel off of the plot of what God has in mind, right? Are you guys with me? Yeah. Awesome. So I don't believe that we can expect to have influence in our culture, especially a culture that's all about authenticity, if we're not really repenting about our moral compromise or we're content not to pray. I think that this is maybe one of the reasons why, again, we've, in our time and culture, lost our compelling voice amongst secular societies because we're pretty content not to pray. So the second part of you becoming a creative minority is to regain or recapture that holy longing to worship God above everyone and everything else, right? They didn't like Daniel, but at least they knew that he, when he said he believed in God and he had a life that was devoted to God, that was completely consistent. His beliefs about God and his life were completely consistent. And so what we need to recover as the people of Jesus is to be the kinds of people who are devoted to God in prayer and wholly long for him. Now, notice that, again, I don't think that Daniel is concerned with entering into the culture wars of his day. I don't think that's what's going on here. What is going on is his private and his public life was set apart for God. His private and his public life was set apart for God. And that exposed him in a really risky kind of secular culture. But what this comes down to for Daniel, what I think it comes down to for us, is that God is, at the end of the day, completely worthy of all of our worship our entire allegiance, and he's worthy of us worshiping him and no one or nothing else. And so as we cultivate a life of prayer and as we devote our lives to worship, I believe it becomes an inseparable part of us that you would never be able to uh, separate from your actual person and your being. 
And that kind of intimacy, that kind of love for God, that kind of daily habitual practice of God in his presence, it does change you into the kind of person in which Daniel was able to influence a culture, although he was in the extreme minority. So you guys, you know the rest of the story. You know how it goes. Daniel is exposed as having prayed to God and not to King Darius. And so he's thrown into the lion's den. So King Darius is devastated because he actually really likes Daniel. And so he's nervous all through the night for Daniel's well-being. And the following morning, King Darius runs to where the uh, the lion's den is. And this is what happens. This is what it says. It says, Daniel answered, uh, from the lion's den, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lion's. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I love that. And then it says this, King Darius wrote to all of the nations and all of the peoples of every language in all of the earth. This is what he says. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lion's. I love this. Do you see how God accomplishes his victory? It's not because Daniel is out there joining some culture war battle of some kind. It's actually because he was willing to be faithful to God and he had this unbending resolve to pray and God somehow used that fidelity and used that devotion to him at the deepest part of his being in a minority position to influence an entire generation. So what we have is the one who formerly was receiving false worship, a former false god, King Darius, is actually flipping the script and commanding everyone to turn instead and worship Daniel's God. He starts preaching a message about the good news and power of Yahweh. The former false god is repenting and turning his heart to God. This is remarkable turn of events, incredible victory that's won because of Daniel's faithfulness. Are you getting the point? And because Daniel's willing to risk everything to be faithful to God in a hostile culture, God showed him this, this, his great power in this completely undeniable way. And ultimately what Daniel does, which is a thing that happens to us as we are members of this creative minority, we uh, testify of God's goodness. Again, see, uh, I think it's, it's very probable, possible, um, only a matter of time, that as you follow after Jesus and our culture, you will get noticed, and you will draw both positive and negative attention when you live in stark contrast to the world. It's just what happens. And uh, when that happens, you draw, like Daniel, positive and negative attention, there's going to come a moment, an opportunity for you to share about God's love and power in your life. And Daniel sees that opportunity. He sees that moment when it presented itself 
to him, and he was actually credible, so he had some ground to stand on, and the influence of Daniel's ministry rippled through the entire empire, which is still to this day is remarkable for me to even to admit. Now, um, as a lot of you know, I'm kind of like a I'm a theology nerd, and so I like to just dive into all things theology. So um, I'm always reading a couple of different books, and then also YouTube has learned this about me, that I'm a theology nerd. And so uh, the way the algorithm works, as you know, is they just keep feeding you more stuff. And I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. Oh, that sounds interesting. So as I'm like trying to go to bed the last couple of nights, I've been like listening to these old lectures from like 10 years ago about a couple of books that I've read that I find endlessly fascinating. One is by Dr. Uh, Tim Keller, who wrote this book called The Reason for God. Um, And he wrote it specifically to sort of an anti-God, intellectual, secular uh, culture. And if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend you pick it up. But he was invited by Columbia University and Google to come and give these lectures about his book on the reason for God. And he's still getting all kinds of hostile attention in these lectures and all of the Q&Rs. You have these people who are very vengeful and very angry, like shouting at him. And he just receives all of those things, I think, very well. And he just responds very kindly and very politely what the truth actually is from his perspective. And what's fascinating is both him with that, uh, those couple of lectures that I watched, and then also a lecture that I watched by Dr. Francis Collins, who's the head of the Human Genome Project and uh, one of the foremost geneticists in the entire world. He became a Christian later in life, and he wrote a book called The Language of God, also really fantastic. He was invited by UC Berkeley and UFC of all Oh, USC of all places in order to come and share about his book. And in both of these lectures, all of these lectures that I'm watching, we, you have the questioners coming up at the end of the lecture saying, by the way, that's a great lecture. I don't agree with all what, you, what you're saying, but I just have to say I've never seen these rooms as packed out as they are right now when you're here talking about the living God or who you, who you say is the living God. So there's this remarkable thing that begins to happen with actual, credible, integrous uh, voices from within the Christian community is that there's actually a genuine interest in who God is. There is actually a genuine longing for God. I believe, like I've said many times before throughout this series, that there is eternity in our hearts and that we only find our true fulfillment and uh, meaning when we find our, our, our souls in him. And I would argue, I firmly believe that um, most of our secular world, although they may present as very sure of themselves and very um, fulfilled in life, particularly here in Bend, the reality is that we are all longing for the love of Jesus above everything else in life. And we have this great uh, message, this great good news about who Jesus is and how transformational life can be. Cole is a brilliant example of that. Many of you are as well. But as we become this this, uh, creative minority where we actually are devoted to faithfulness in God and we're actually devoting our lives to prayer, we begin to regain the compelling, credible witness that God always intended us to have right from within our secular society. Is this making sense? And are you with me? Awesome. Okay. So in Daniel's case, he saw an entire empire where Yahweh worship was illegal 
And then it became like the official religion within his lifetime because he was faithful to Yahweh, resolved to pray, and testified of his goodness. Last example before we're done. You guys are doing great. We're almost there. Um, there's a story about a man in the Bible named Nehemiah, and he also lived during the Babylonian exile. And again, he is in the extreme minority. Now there's a king by the name of King Artaxerxes, and he was kind of like his, his like cupbearer. He was responsible for pouring him wine, so that's what he did. And so uh, Nehemiah is also a faithful Yahweh worshiper, even though he lives in Babylon, and he hears a report from some people who had been passing through Jerusalem, which was hundreds of miles away. And they said, you know, Jerusalem is in ruins, where we used to worship God, where the presence of God used to dwell, and these holiest, beautiful holy city, it's just completely in rubble. It's just, it's completely fallen apart. And so this is what this does to Nehemiah uh, in Nehemiah chapter one, starting in verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the, heaven of, uh, the hev- uh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's referring to Artaxerxes. So what does Nehemiah do when he finds out about his homeland that is in ruin. Well, what he does is he prays and he grieves over the state of Israel. This leads him to pray, to fast, and to cry out to God. Again, prayer is the common denominator throughout all of the language of the Bible where there is renewal, where there is awakening, where there is revival. There's always a praying core. And Nehemiah is this person who is committed to praying, and he's got this holy longing for the restoration of Israel. And then he just goes to work. He just goes to work that day. And as he goes to work that day, it's the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And he was bringing wine to the king. As he took the wine and was giving it to him, he hadn't been sad in King Artaxerxes' presence before. So the king noticed this about Nehemiah. And he says, why does your face look so sad when you're not even ill, you're not sick? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So Artaxerxes is present to the reality that his cupbearer is not well. And he says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when my city, the city where my ancestors are buried, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king responds, what what is it that you want? He says, I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered the king. Okay, as a prayer guy, I just can't not jump on that. Okay? Before he launches into his ask of King Artaxerxes, I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Okay, so uh, very kind of simple details to the story here. Uh, But 
uh, Nehemiah is seizing the opportunity that he has. He's just a faithful cupbearer to the king. He's going to work. He's grieving over the state of things in Israel. And then he seizes the opportunity. Not before praying a lot more, he seizes his opportunity. And this requires a ton of courage in a pagan environment to vocalize and to lean into the mission of God. And again, I think that um, in our culture and our day and age, although I'm not a big proponent, as you've heard me say, of us entering into the culture wars of our day, I am very interested in us leaning into, vocalizing, and possessing the courage uh, to lean into God's mission, the reality that God has made us as followers of Jesus to make disciples, to tell the good news about Jesus, and then invite people in every way, shape, and form into a life with him. So Nehemiah is opportunistic, and he is courageous. And I think we need to be opportunistic and courageous about our mission. Again, I'm not saying that we want to Christianize the West with our values, but I'm saying that we want for uh, people to come to faith in Jesus. That's what we want. And then that will one day pervade and affect every facet of broader society. So we have to get our mission straight. We have to decide which hill to die on. And for Nehemiah, he's like, I know what hill I'm dying on. And we would die for our, our, our mission. Our mission is to see people come to faith. And that will, in turn, affect every facet of broader society. And that's exactly what happens in Daniel's case and in Nehemiah's case. And then this is, again, what it says in chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. And then the rest is history. Nehemiah actually saw God rebuild the holy city. He saw God rebuild the temple. He saw God restore God's people. And there was the people of God were worshiping him in Jerusalem again. See, the kingdom of God's advance, this is where all of this is leading. The kingdom of God's advance does not depend on his popularity or my popularity in the social climate. It depends on his power and how he intends to bring about his victory. Again, 2 Corinthians 10, for we live in the world. We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The key idea is that God knows how to accomplish his victory and he wants to use us. We can spend our lives being very upset and being very scared about things that are not in our control. And unfortunately, I think that is one of the schemes of the enemy to actually just get us very distracted about things that we cannot control and get you and I very worked up about it. But there is a lot that is still under the realm of our control. And what's under the realm of your control is your own personal integrity. It's well within your ability to control. Your personal faithfulness to God, your devotion to him, to your cultivating a life of prayer like Daniel and Nehemiah. This is well within your ability to control. And then God is perfectly capable of his accomplishing his victory, even if that would just be a short, small handful of us. Are you with me? So well, here's what this does. It just invites a couple of questions as we close. Here's the questions. Um, the posture of the creative minority, it pulls us in to focus on a couple of things. The first one would be this. 
for us to embrace the season of being in a creative minority. And we embrace it as God's way of forming character in us. He wants to form us. And this minority position that we find ourselves in, um, and by a minority, I mean that fewer and fewer people are identifying as Christian, particularly on the West Coast and in the Pacific Northwest. So we embrace this season for what it is. We are in the minority, and God wants to use this to form character in us. Um, it also leads us to ask, I think, an important question. God, what gap do you want to address in the soul of my leadership first? The, 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 without question, I'm still in process, and the Lord is working on me. I, I think I mentioned to you guys last week that both gentleness and anxiety are things that the Lord is working in my heart right now, currently in this season. And sometimes I feel like I've taken one step backwards or one step forwards and two steps back or whatever. But the reality is I'm still very much in process. So as we embrace that we are in a season of formation, well, God, what area um, do you want to address in me first? Number three, the question is, are you being faithful to advance God's kingdom with the power and the influence that you already have? Again, I've seen a hyper-focus on the areas that we have no control over in broader society. But the question, the bigger question, is what about the current influence you have? What about the power that you do have in your neighborhood, at your place of work, with your family, and with our city? Some of you have incredible influence because of your vocation in the medical field or in education or many other things. So are you being faithful to advance God's kingdom with the power and influence you already have? Number four, are you becoming the kind of person that God can trust with great spiritual power? Right? Daniel and Nehemiah had the capacity to lead in God's kingdom because they were men of integrity. I'm looking at a lot of men and women of integrity. And I know that the Lord is working on each of us. But I want to be the kind of person that if God were to answer my wildest prayers for revival in our time and culture, we would have the character to sustain that movement here. Does that make sense? That's what we long for is not just an awakening to the gospel, but an awakening to the gospel where the people of God have already matured to the place where we can actually carry God's project forward. Are you becoming the kind of person that God can trust with great spiritual power? And finally, are you praying with unbending resolve for God's kingdom to come in our time? And again, this whole series has been an inspiration, hopefully, for us to finally reorder our lives and to actually give the best of our time and our energy to God's presence in prayer. And I've heard from many of you who've been inspired and, and have enjoyed this uh, series, which I'm so very happy about. And this can become normal for you. And I'm about to shift gears. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be in a series on Advent, which I can't wait for, anticipating the birth of Jesus. However, has this series, has this time where we have looked through the pages of Scripture and looked at all of the different ways that God may be inviting you and I into a life of prayer, has that transferred, has that translated to new habits being formed in you so that your life and your praying life could never be separated out? It's just as natural to you as eating, drinking, and sleeping. 
That's the goal. And if we, we haven't gotten there yet, again, no judgment. Please don't hear me up here dissatisfied or disappointed with anyone or don't feel any shame. But if it hasn't, what's the reason? Why have we not reordered our lives to this point? Because I think God has made a really compelling case for why we would reorder our lives around seeking him in prayer. The reality is that there may still be some idols in our heart or false images about God in our minds or strongholds in our culture that would actually keep us from devoting ourselves to a life of prayer. But now's the time to order that out. Now the time, and now is the time to invite God to search us, to search our hearts, to see if there's any wicked way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting in the language of Psalm 139. So that's the invitation for you is to don't be satisfied with me getting amped about prayer. But allow the scripture and the word taught to begin to even uh, you know, make a change and transform you, actually make you order your life in a way that it's the first thing. It's the, the first thing you do in the mornings. It's the thing that you break every day at noon for. It's the thing that you go to bed at night doing. I have to tell you a story. Last night, um, my wife was putting our son Judah, who's five years old, to bed. And um, she was doing the normal uh, uh, evening routine. She was reading a few books and laying there in the bed with him and praying and stuff like that. And evidently, um, as she was wrapping up, all of a sudden Judah just went quiet. And she goes, buddy, what, um, what's, what's going on? She, and he goes, well, I'm praying that God would come down and defeat the devil. That's what he said. <laughs> and she's like, you mean the devil? And he goes, oh, yeah, I guess the devil, yeah. And then my wife, uh, who is just the absolute best, she said, you know, he already has. And I'm like, for a theology guy, that's like a turn on for your wife to say. It's like, yeah, he did. Yes, he is victorious. He is king. He's all of that. I'm like, yeah, baby, that. That's the exact right answer. He has already claimed his victory, and he did that on the cross. And as she was explaining that uh, to my son, he was like, yeah, yeah. And then he asked why then is there still so much sadness? And that's a little bit of a trickier theological question to answer, particularly with a five-year-old. But essentially, my wife began to explain that his ultimate victory is coming again, hopefully really soon. And so then he prayed, okay, God, then I pray that you would come and defeat the devil all over again. <laughs> so absolutely love. And I guess we, that's pretty instructive. We can actually learn a lot from, from the childlike faith of our kids, can't we? And um, if there's one thing that I've been convicted about, about my own personal discipleship, this is no, no one here, this is just my personal discipleship, is that as I've read more and learned more and participated more in the life of the church, I have at times... Um, gotten too sophisticated and graduated out of the most basic thing, which is an act of faith in prayer to God for my daily needs. And I repent of that before you as my sisters and brothers. Like, that is not who we are. You and I, regardless of what seminary degree you might have attached to your name or whatever experience you have, I'm looking at my my mentor here in the front row has been reading Psalms and Proverbs every day for the last 50 years, no joke. Led in church meetings over the last 50 years. We never graduate 
out of seeking God and his face as a matter of first importance. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's seek him. Let's seek his face. I believe the knock-on effects of all of what we're talking about is that we will actually regain a compelling voice in secular society. And I actually believe that God, in all of the ways that he accomplishes his victory in ways that are not at all like the world, I believe that is coming. And I think the examples of that are some of the ones that I've mentioned already, Cole being not the least uh, of, of, of the testimonies that I'm referring to. And there's many more people like that that the Lord is inviting in. You might be able to see it with your own eyes. We may not, although Sherry, uh, Sherry, are you here? Sherry comes normally to the 11 a.m. gathering. She's in her mid-70s. And I, I told her the other, I was preaching the other day, I said, oh, we may not see the awakening to the gospel that I've been praying for for the last six years, nine months here in Central Oregon. And she came up to me and corrected me. She says, no, I'm going to see it. You're going to be around a lot longer than that. I'm going to see it with my own eyes, even though she's in her mid-70s. I'm like, Sherry, I love that faith. But, but even, if, even if we don't see a widespread awakening to the gospel, let's not have it be because of a lack of prayer amongst us. And we don't have to settle for anything less than awakening in our own selves to pursue him as a matter of first importance. Let's stand and pray. So I'd love to just invite you to open your hands with me and to take in a deep breath. I just want you to picture Jesus when he rose from the dead on the first Easter morning. The scripture says he entered the room where the disciples were and remember, they were freaked out. And as he passed through the door and made it to the room where the disciples were, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And then the scripture says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So as you breathe in deep, you to just notice God's spirit coming over you. It's just very simple, isn't it? You and I are just in this room together calling God on the promise that he made. No one has coerced him into loving you. No one has forced him to go to the cross and die on the sin for you, or die on the cross for your sin for you. Scripture says that it was the love of Christ that 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 compels us. So as you receive the Holy Spirit again today, just begin to embrace that love that Jesus has for you and that grace that Jesus has for you. 
before the gathering as we were praying, my friend Joe um, just had a sense that um, there was gonna be someone here who came in today with a lot of doubt and um, where faith is kind of at rock bottom for you. And the word that he got was that this place would be almost like a sanctuary. Um, the idea of a sanctuary is just like this set apart holy space where God is showing up and you can meet with him and engage with him and delight in him. And maybe a lot of the stuff that I was talking about, about you know, post-Christian culture and the story of Daniel and how those things connect or whatever, maybe not a whole lot of that stuck with you, but what did stick with you is just this like spark of hope. There's some safety here. There's some healing available here. There's some peace available here. And that's just coming from him. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's you, to just receive from the Lord today his hope and his peace and his healing. And if I'm not talking to you because you came in here with a lot of hope and vigor and excitement and vitality to your faith, I just would encourage you, would you join me in praying for those in the room who need to be healed and touched by the Holy Spirit today? So I just want to give us a tiny bit of time right now to just do that. Just hold space for receiving or for praying for the people to our left and right. singing aloud the goodness of God and his faithfulness to us. Again, that's an appropriate, reasonable, the right kind of response for us as we worship is to sing aloud of his goodness and, and victory. So let's do that together. And then as is our weekly practice, we want to encourage you during this next song to just come forward to grab the elements, the bread and the cup and return to your seat. And here in a moment, we'll take it together as one church. I love you guys, and I'm so grateful for the chance that I get to pastor this church, and I consider it a high honor. I hope what you hear is a deep, uh, sincere longing for you to enjoy the goodness of God that is possible as we seek his face. Let's sing and worship. Let's come to the tables of communion. <laughs> 